Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 192. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Baseball playoffs are here. Halloween is just a few weeks away. Election Day is about a month out. And Elon Musk is buying Twitter. So now is definitely a time to stay vigilant. Elon Musk wants to turn Twitter into a super app that does everything in one place. And I will tell you now, I hate that idea. I don't want Twitter to do more things. I like how it works now. Every day, the entire world picks one person and destroys their life. (laughs) And then the next day, we find someone else. It's perfect. It works pretty well. But for real, like, Twitter is such a toxic sewer. Why would you want to link it to all the other parts of your life? It's like a businessman saying, hey, you see this trash can? What if it was also your car? (laughs) And not to burst anyone's bubble, but we already have this, all right? It's called an iPhone. Seriously, are we so lazy now that we're like, oh, I want to order someone to bring me food, but the app is all the way on the other side of the phone, (laughs) and my thumb is so tired, That's, of course, the brilliant Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show, who recently announced he'll be stepping down from the show after replacing Jon Stewart seven years ago. The world would probably be better off if Trevor Noah was leaving The Daily Show to buy Twitter. Definitely funnier. But unfortunately, he's not. And Elon Musk is. And he's not that funny. Although he thinks he is. Elon Musk is going to buy Twitter and will likely let Trump back on. But not before Musk may or may not have called Vladimir Putin recently. Whether he called Putin or not, we know he has encouraged Ukraine to seek a peace agreement. Seek peace from a brutal animal that bombs civilians, releases criminals to enlist in his monster army, and condones war crimes. Yeah, seek peace. And everyone gets a puppy and a Tesla. So one of the richest guys in the world is continuing to stick his nose in geopolitics. And along the way... He's launching rockets into space while doing weird stuff like launching a new perfume called Burnt Hair. Yes, really. It's a new bottled fragrance available via Musk's The Boring Company website. And he says he's already sold 10,000 bottles and made over a million dollars. This is our world, people. We are living in confusing times. Chaotic times. Stressful times. Bloody times overwhelming times, and confusing times. And it's not just America. The entire world is disrupted, disjointed, and downright confusing. Yeah, it's all pretty confusing, especially now. But I want to work with you to make sense of it. Because in the midst of all the confusion and chaos, there is clarity. There are many cases of right 
and wrong, black and white, and many examples of light busting through that land of confusion to create hope. Yeah, these are confusing times, maybe the most confusing of times, but there's a chance that it might be the storm before the calm, the fire before the regrowth, the dark before the light. And we're going to get deep into that with our guest in this episode. He's a man that makes sense of the confusion, who cuts through the chaos with clarity, who understands the depth of this shit, but still has hope for the future. And as I talk about on this show all the time, hope is the oxygen of democracy. And we need hope and democracy more than ever. Because damn, shit is confusing out there. Foreign and domestic, economic, environmental, political, geopolitical. It's all pretty messy right now. But leadership, hope, and democracy can be like the binding agent that turns that mess of disjointed ingredients into a tasty cake that got cooked by all that heat. But make no mistake, it is messy and it is hot. From the streets of Iran to the campaign trail in Pennsylvania to the battlefields of Ukraine, to the halls of Congress exploring January 6th. It's an almost overwhelming flood of news and tumult. But this is our new normal. This is our regular reality. The flood of blood and pain is constant. But there's an old saying in the military that pain is weakness leaving the body. That's usually, in my opinion, some tough guy bullshit. But... Maybe all this pain in the world now is a release for our body politic, our global body politic. Maybe there is a brighter day when all this pain was necessary to get us to a better world. From the pain of the January 6th hearings coming up this week, to the pain of the Alex Jones trial, to the pain of the Ukraine war, to the pain of the brave protests in Iran. Maybe on the other side of all this, There's a more stable U.S. government, rid of traitorous election deniers and Putin apologists. Maybe there's a day with no Trump. Maybe there's a day where Putin is gone and Russia is different. Maybe there's a day when the people of Iran are finally free. It's possible. It's hard to see in the midst of all this confusion and chaos. But what if? And if you want to think about, believe in, and hope for a better future, Look to the courage and heroism happening inside Iran. That's a clip from the center of Tehran. People bravely chanting death to the dictator. Cars honking, security forces all over the place. And people are still chanting loudly death to the dictator in the face of violence and death. In Iran, The war is on now, the war for the future, and they can, and they got to win it. It'll be bloody, but this time, this time they can win and never have to fight this war again. We just got to make sure the world sees and support them inside Iran like we're doing with Ukraine. That's the key, because in Ukraine, it's working. 
This week, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met with Ukraine's Secretary of Defense Oleski Reznikov, and he put together a group of nearly 50 nations to support Ukraine. And when they met, Sekdev Austin even gave him a pound. Hello, my friend. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. That was their handshake. And the U.S. has to continue to support Ukraine now because the Zaporizhnia nuclear power plant continues to lose power. Ukrainians continue to die and Ukraine continues to score wins, including blowing up a critical bridge that was in Crimea. It was a key supply route for Russian forces in Ukraine's south, but it was also a bridge of symbolic importance to Putin. And Putin was pissed and responded as Putin does with brutality and indiscretion, launching a series of missile and rocket attacks at cities all across Ukraine. And the magnificent President Zelensky continues to update his people in the world daily and has continued to call for the world to help him close the skies of Ukraine. Those are his exact words, close the skies. And yes, we've talked about it on this show all the way back to our episode with Adam Kinzinger, I've supported a no-fly zone, and we must continue to find ways to close Ukraine's skies now. It's long overdue. So is a no-fly zone. It'll give Ukraine the support they need, and it'll help stop more Ukrainian bridges and schools and homes and shopping malls from being blown up. All around the globe, it continues to be a land of confusion. But bridges ain't the only things blowing up. Back here in America, When it comes to our political system, the great fragmenting has begun. So that's what I'm going to start calling it until I can think of something better. And props to Taylor Swift for the perfect song for this segment, which will likely have to be a reoccurring one. The two parties in America are failing the people, and the people know it. The people always know it before the politicians. But the politicians, at least some of them, are waking up to that reality. And they're jumping ship, freaking out, starting new shit, and eating their own. But the alliances and unity we saw coalesce around the 2022 election is gone. And the great fragmentation of our politics has really begun. Now, I've argued for a long time that this was happening in small ways, and it might have happened sooner if things had gone differently. If Gore beats Bush in 2000, the socially moderate and socially conservative middle and far right in the Republican Party would have fragmented, maybe into two parties or more. And if Bernie Sanders had gotten the Democratic nomination in 2022, the Democratic Party probably would have broken into pieces with the Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Hillary moderates in one camp and the AOC, Bernie Sanders, Ilhan Omar, far-left socialist Democrats in another camp. And now, as we get closer and closer to the 2024 presidential election, if it's Biden and Trump again, if Trump continues to ascend again, and especially if Trump or Biden die, this fragmentation may be inevitable and definitely overdue and necessary. The great fragmentation of our politics in America would hit a high gear if that were to happen. More parties have always been what America needed. But now, especially if a few things happen, it's going to hit hyperdrive. Never, 
So Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger is part of this great fragmentation. We talked about it when he was a guest on this show back in episode 159. Well, now he'll be out of Congress in January, and he's already started to break with the GOP. He hasn't left the party completely, but he said he might. Now, Liz Cheney might, too. Maybe they'll link up and form the new moderate Republican Party called something else. But for now, Adam Kinzinger is endorsing independent Evan McMullen for Senate in Utah, another guy who's been on this show. And now... Kinziger is even endorsing some Democrats in key races where they're up against MAGAists. That's what I call them, MAGAists. Kinzinger threw his support behind Democratic gubernatorial nominees Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Katie Hobbs in Arizona, Democratic Secretary of State nominee Adrian Fontes in Arizona, Steve Simon in Minnesota, Jocelyn Benson in Michigan, Cisco Aguiar in Nevada, and Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Kinzinger is also backing Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski and McMullen in Utah and House Republican hopeful Larry Lazor in Connecticut and a state House candidate in Minnesota. Here's what Kinzinger had to say while announcing his endorsements on MSNBC's Morning Joe with our friend Willie Geist. The most important thing that we deal with in November uh, that we can vote on is based on do you actually believe in democracy? You know, look, we're going to argue tax rates forever. We're going to ar- probably going to argue abortion forever, even some of those hot topics out there. But the one thing we can't continue arguing if we lose it is, are we going to be a self-governing nation? And you have so many people out there that are convincing half of the country. We're trying to convince half the country that the election system doesn't work, that their vote was stolen. Democracies and self-governance cannot survive when they live in a bed of lies. So the great fragmenting has begun and the panic and fight for independence is continuing to happen nationwide, nowhere more than Pennsylvania, where wounded Democrat John Fetterman is now neck and neck with crazy and unqualified Dr. Mehmet Oz. Now, Fetterman had a stroke this summer and finally did his first sit down interview on camera with a news agency, but he had to read the questions from a teleprompter and just didn't look good. He still hasn't released his medical records, and everyone can see that it looks like they're trying to shoot him up to get him through the finish line. And it ain't working. Look, I know people can recover from strokes, and many people do it amazingly. But this guy does not seem ready right now, and there's no spin in this. It doesn't make Fetterman look good to voters, especially independent Americans who aren't loyal to party. And amazingly, unfortunately, Dr. Oz is gaining ground. And their upcoming debate is going to be nuts. Fetterman is looking like the Tua Tagovailoa of politics right now. And the Democratic Party is like the Dolphins. Their guy is hurt and everyone can see it. And similarly, it's obvious and hard to watch. And similarly, I'm rooting for both of them. I just hope Fetterman's result is better than Tua's so far. For all of us. They just needed to take Tua out of the game and let him heal. And maybe the Democrats should do the same for Fetterman. Until then, if you're in Pennsylvania, they're battling over your vote. And if you're not in Pennsylvania, they're battling for your clicks and your money. Because there's no independent in that race. But if there was, he or she might be rising to the top right now. But in Pennsylvania, there is a vote next month at the state level on creating open primaries. We've talked about it on this show, and we talked about supporting our friends Ballot PA and NFL legend Rocky Blyer. And this has got to be a priority for all Americans, 
Because along with getting open primaries in Pennsylvania, we've got to defend them in 10 states that are under attack by MAGA forces who want to deny tens of millions of independents like you and me the right to vote in publicly funded elections. It's a critical way we can ensure that the great fragmenting benefits independent Americans, benefits our elections, and benefits the future of America. No matter how you cut it, a player on that playing field of the great fragmenting is the forward party. And we're going to continue to give you updates on the evolution of the forward party. And this week, Andrew Yang tweeted something that I wanted to highlight. He said, I agree with many left policy goals. My issues with much of the left are that they seem disinterested in building productive organizations. They attack people and turn them off. And they're more often concerned with ideological battles than actually improving anyone's real life. Well, that's what Andrew Yang tweeted. And I have thoughts. Look, labeling one side that you were a part of last year as a monolith does nothing to move America forward. And it's just wrong to say they're disinterested in building productive organizations. I have known people on both sides, and many of them are interested in building productive organizations. You might not like them, but they are interested in them. So this stuff from Yang, it's unhelpful. And even more so, it's a bad strategy to attract real independent Americans. And it's just more the same from Yang lately. And I tweeted this. I said, it's also amazingly tone deaf and failing in self-awareness. If I were going to start a new party for independents like me, Andrew Yang would be among the last politicians I'd pick to lead it. For most independent Americans, he's a small step away from Marion Williamson. And when I tweeted that out, she actually tweeted back. She tweeted back, excuse me, Paul. Well, to which I responded, hi, Marianne. I hope you're well. You're a Democrat who ran for president. So is Andrew. Neither of you got many Dem votes. You'd get even fewer independents now especially with positions like calling for the freeing of Julian Assange, which she did this week. Look, whether it's Yang or Marion Williamson, until or unless the forward party gets a formidable, widely respected, and truly independent leader in front, it will continue to struggle to appeal to most and true independent Americans. And in the recent episode of Independent Americans with Governor Christy Todd Whitman, Yang's forward party co-founder, I pressed her on this issue specifically. Look, if Yang's going to be monolithing, every one of those attacks could have also been lobbed at the right. But this is all just lightweight stuff. Like most independent Americans, I'm much more interested in hearing about what the forward party stands for than what Yang personally does or doesn't like. I look forward to having a good discussion about all this with Andrew Yang. But unlike most others in the media, ranging from the New York Times to Chris Cuomo, I'll have to wait until the end of November. That's when Yang's people have given me a date to come on this show, November 30th. So until then, more on this great fragmentation. This week, surprising no one, former Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, also a guest on this show in the past, announced she's formally leaving the Democratic Party. Although it seems like she left it years ago. And it definitely left her. And she put out an announcement with lots of Republican attacks, some independent messages and some Dem ones. It was uniquely, weirdly Tulsi. And now it's a show. 
She has a new podcast. Now, she calls it independent, but it's only independent in that right-wing Fox News, Glenn Beck kind of way. And it underscores how powerful the label of independent is for folks who want to use it. Right-wing talk show hosts have been doing it for decades. And independents are always a group that many want to try to co-opt. For better or worse, in 2022, independent most often means one thing. None of the above when it comes to political parties. It's the only one true common shared value. It's both a huge branding and political opportunity and also a massive challenge. And in modern time, independent is most defined by default by candidates who fly the independent flag. Ross Perot, Steve Forbes, Jesse Ventura, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mike Bloomberg, Angus King, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, Andrew Yang, Evan McMullen, and others beyond and in between. Every election cycle is another time for independent to be redefined. Until or unless there's a real coordinated movement that rebrands independence with an entire roster of candidates but it will still likely always be defined by its top leader. See Andrew Yang and the Forward Party. Between now and 2024 especially, there is a unique opportunity to galvanize independence as our numbers continue to grow among Democrat and Republican defectors, and especially young people, vets, and others. But the solution to the broken two-party duopoly is not another party. It's a movement a series of disruptions and changes, and transformative leadership. And I've said it before. If you think an independent can't win, what if that independent was Colin Powell in 1992? Or Oprah Winfrey in 2004? Or Dwayne The Rock Johnson in 2024? Or maybe 2028? Don't dismiss it. Don't laugh. Remember, Everyone did that once about Ronald Reagan and about Jesse the Body Ventura and especially about Donald Trump. And if you smell what The Rock is cooking, you heard this week that he's not closing the door. I have heard now um, from both sides of the aisle of the most influential people in politics asking if I would run, hoping that I would run. And again, it's so moving, man, and surreal. I don't know anything about politics, and uh, I will say that I absolutely, um, I'm a patriot, and I love our country, and I love everybody in it, regardless of color or culture, don't care what your bank account says, what kind of car you drive. Um, but the most important job that I have is daddy, and my two whys. Um, why I have to take that off the table of running for president. One is six and the other one is four. Dwayne The Rock Johnson says he's been blown away by the calls for him to launch a White House bid. But he says he's going to focus on his family for now. Now, he's looked at the numbers. And he says when the numbers creep up into the 46%, 50% of the country that would vote for him, he's been moved by that. One poll from 2021 found that 58% of Americans would like to see The Rock as the next president of the United States. Now, in the same poll, 58% said they would support actor Matthew McConaughey. Now, The Rock's called himself a political independent and a centrist who's voted for candidates on both sides. 
but he calls himself a patriot. He says he loves his country, and damn, he's popular. So don't dismiss it. Don't laugh it off. Everyone did that about Ronald Reagan once, and about Arnold Schwarzenegger, and about Zelensky, and especially about Donald Trump. And The Rock would definitely galvanize more independent Americans than Andrew Yang or Tulsi Gabbard. And coming up in our conversation with our guest, we discuss The Rock specifically as a leader with unique and powerful appeal, one who'd be an earned media turnout and fundraising machine. So don't sleep. The Rock might not be the leader this time, but maybe next time. And imagine what kind of body slam that would bring to our political process as the great fragmentation continues. Because movements are built, fueled, and led by unique, transformative leaders. It's always been true. And it's especially true now, for better or worse. Obama, Trump, Zelensky, all powerful recent examples. And I've said it before. I believe the one true political spirit animal for independence is not Andrew Yang. It's now and always will be George Washington the last and only president to stand without a party as a true independent. I've been exploring this for years on this podcast, and I'll continue on that critical journey in these vital years to come. It's my mission now, and it's our mission. And I'll have, join, and support other efforts in support of that mission, and I encourage you to join me. Because we're all in this together, and stakes is high. Stakes are high, higher and higher by the day, especially if you heard our recent episode on Putin's nukes with our friend Professor Nuke himself, Joe Serencione. And I want to continue to educate ourselves on this evolving and confusing world with important, inspiring, and iconic Americans that are shaping what America has been, what it is, and what it will be. Professors of nukes. Professors of war, like Malcolm Nance in our last episode, and professors of business. And in this episode, we're going to make sense of this land of confusion with a professor of clarity, a man who's made a name for himself by breaking down the confusion of technology, business, and politics, a man who presents a laser beam of an analytical brain and is a master of one-liners that would even leave the rock impressed. British GQ called him Gordon Gecko with a social conscience. Bill Maher called him a walking applause break. Elon Musk called him an insufferable numbskull. He's a professor of marketing at NYU's Stern School of Business. He's a co-host of the incredibly successful and influential Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher. He's the host of his own Professor G podcast and the author of the new best-selling book, Adrift. He's a highly successful entrepreneur who's made a boatload of money and now teaches others how to do the same. He's the author behind the must-read email newsletter, No Mercy, No Malice. He's like a walking mini TED Talk and the kind of guy you wish was your professor in college. He's a damn cool guy to have a drink with. He's Professor Scott Galloway.
and he is not confused. And he is here to help us all be less confused and more focused and more enlightened and more inspired. While other shows focus on what's happening, in this pod, I'm always going to focus on what's next. And following Professor Nuke and Professor War, we've now got Professor G to help us understand what the future holds on everything from the cost of your mortgage to the future of the forward party, to whether or not The Rock is the marketing piece independents need, to whether or not he himself will run for office. It's a conversation that will help you get smarter, predict better, and of course, stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. So welcome to the land of confusion. Welcome to another masterclass with a professor who's handing out the cheat code on how to get through it all. This is a fun one. And no, there will not be a test at the end. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 192. Independent Americans around the country and around the world. We have a very special treat, a man that I am a huge fan of, a leader that I think is critical to this moment, also a master of this uh, this podcasting and, and media medium, um, and a guy that I can't think of anyone who would be more important to talk to right now as we will get into uh, a new friend and, and a leader that we all need to hear from the great and powerful Professor Scott Galloway is here on Independent Americans. Welcome, sir. Uh, Paul, thanks for setting that impossibly high bar. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Well, you deserve it, man. I think, I think you know, I, I, we had a phone call last week and are just getting to know each other. Um, but I, I really have been grateful and impressed by your work, especially in this moment of chaos. Uh, it's, it's a wild time, man. Uh, thanks for saying that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it always feels, it, no one ever wakes up and thinks, wow, this is, this feels like a boring era, but this does feel especially tumultuous or important. Well, I want to ask you the question I ask of, of everyone to start. Mm -hmm. uh, where are you in the world and how are you? Uh, I am in London. I moved here about almost a month ago. Um, I've wanted, my parents are from here. I've always wanted to live here. My I have school-aged children, 12 and 15-year-old boys. I wanted to get them sort of out of their comfort zone and uh, do something different. I've been kind of molesting the earth for the better part of 30 years. And one observation I made is that America is still the best place to make money, but Europe is the best place to spend it. And I'm older than you. I want to slow down a bit, and, you know, kind of stop and smell the roses. So I wanted to spend time in Europe. So I'm here. Uh, how am I? I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm blessed. I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a bit of an adjustment. You know, my youngest is homesick. I don't, little things. I don't have my gym. I can't figure out how to charge anything. I can't figure, you know, I can't, I tried to watch Game of Thrones last night and couldn't figure out the TV. So it's, it's taking a little bit of adjusting, but that's um, all part and parcel. But so on the whole, you know, my worst days are better than a lot of people's best days. I'm doing, I'm doing good to great. Excellent. Well, I, I want to talk to you uh, about raising boys and parenting. We talk about mm -hmm. that a lot in this show, and I've got two boys that are about 10 years younger than you. I want to talk about 
the economy. I'd like mm-hmm. to talk about Elon Musk. I'd like to get your views on the political landscape, um, but maybe kick to kick it off here. Um, I, you know, you're you're kind of a clarion voice and and uh, an accurate predictor. We've had Malcolm Nance on here. We call him uh, Nostradamus. You know, I try mm-hmm. to be the Tony Romo of national security and politics, but you've been very effective in predicting what is to come. Jamie Dimon has now said that we're headed for a recession in, in six months or so. I uh, wanted to get your quick reactions to, to that, which seems to be reverberating, uh, and just the general uh, economic landscape that we're facing now and we're facing ahead. What, what do you see now and what do you see coming? Well, they always say that academics have predicted eight of the last three recessions, but like I don't, I don't see how you can raise interest rates at the rate we've been raising them and not go into recession. Or it's never happened before, and this is all a random walk. There's a first time for everything, but it's hard to imagine we're not going to have some flavor of recession when we're taking interest rates up as aggressively as as we are. The purchasing power of someone who makes or has twenty five hundred dollars to devote to a mortgage. Two years ago, it was a $760,000 home. Now it's a $460,000 home. The average mortgage, if you're in the UK, they're very fond of short-term variable mortgages. If you got a mortgage a year and a half or two years ago in the UK, you're about to see as a resets in the next six months, several million mortgages are about to go up 73% here. Energy uh, energy price escalation, you know, supply chain. It's just hard to imagine we're not going to see some sort of an economic slowdown. At the same time, we're almost at full employment. So there's some contraindicators. But yeah, I think we're going into recession. And also, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. Um, I've been through the you know terrible thing about recessions is they always happen. The good thing about recessions is they always end. And recessions are generally speaking, they're more positive for guys your age in the sense that that decline in asset prices, you're kind of coming into your prime income earning years. I'm leaving them. So guys my age don't want volatility. We want to hold on to our wealth and we want to elect leaders that will pump Elvis full of so many steroids. And when I say Elvis, I mean the government, uh, I'm sorry, the economy, you know, pills to wake it up, pills to go to sleep. There's certain plants, pyrolytic plants that only germinate when there's a fire. The reason I'm economically secure and I get to move to London is because in 2008, 2009, they let the economy outside of the banking industry pretty much crash. And I got to buy Apple and Amazon for, you know, kind of literally pennies on the dollar. And what's dangerous about the current mentality in the US is we see recession or a decline in the stock market is this profound tragedy. And it's hard, it's difficult to go through. And from that rubble emerges opportunities for young people. When a restaurant goes out of business, when Brooklyn real estate gets cut in half, when Amazon and Apple and other stocks go down, as a younger generation comes into their income earning years, they get an opportunity to buy stuff uh, for you know on sale. And I, I don't, I don't, I think it's dangerous this mentality that we have to keep the existing rich rich at all costs. So I think, I think a recession is probably uh, coming, and I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. The economy is cyclical; stocks can't rip up unless occasionally they rip down. We can't have the fuel. The wind in our sails of interest rates going down unless they go up at some point. So yeah, I, I say, you know, hopefully it's a recession, not a depression, but I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. You've got a good no shit way of breaking it down and making it real for, for people um, beyond the headlines. We talk a lot about leadership in this show. 
Mm-hmm. And I ask you to kind of overlay that on the political and national security dynamics where you've got mm-hmm. leaders that are going to stoke political fires on different sides based off the fear of recession, the impact of recession, the personal feel of recession. Can I ask you if you're advising the president, right? If you talk to Biden and say, hey, man, this is what's coming. Here's what you should do. How would you how would you package that? And how do you see it impacting what is a pretty chaotic dangerous political landscape where it looks like I'd love to hear your thoughts, but it looks like we have a Biden Trump matchup coming with potentially third party candidates emerging. How do you see those two um, weather patterns colliding and, and coexisting in the next six to 12 months? So I didn't support Biden for president. I mean, I, w- I voted for him over Trump, but I, I didn't. I thought he was too old to be president. And I wasn't a fan of President Biden's. And I think that there's a decent chance he's going to go down as one of the more important presidents and not for um, reasons that I think people think right now. But and you're going to forget more about this than I'm ever going to know. I'll talk about what I think is going on and what I would advise them to do. I think that the pushback and the victories in Ukraine are nothing short of a seminal moment in history. And that is someone who was uh, a very powerful leader, uh, very politically astute, and has you know twelve or whatever it is twenty thousand nuclear warheads, is kind of muscling around Europe for a long time, and blessed with blessed with huge reserves of oil. And right now, other than having actual boots on the ground, I would argue that that the European Union and NATO are engaged in a conflict with Russia. And to be blunt, we're kicking their ass. And I think that we've put him in a corner and there's a lot of calls for, well, and I understand legitimate calls for we need to deescalate, give him a golden bridge out. There's always a threat of nuclear war. But I, I believe that if this continues, if we continue to see the Ukrainians reclaim in one month more land than the Russians garnered in the previous five, I think this is a recalibration of the geopolitical dynamic to the West's favor. I think for the first time, we have an external threat that has made Europe a union. I think that we're going to find out after the fact, and I'd love to hear your view on this, that we played a bigger role than is getting pressed for in terms of intelligence and armaments um, and resources, just as we sent frigates and armaments and P-51s to Europe and uh, specifically to Britain in the late 30s and the 1940. I think we're doing the same thing, uh, importing gas to Europe such that they can get through the winter without being too reliant on Russian gas. I think this is a huge moment in history where we're turning back one of the most powerful autocrats. I think this will mean more people will live under democracy than autocracy. And I think it's a wonderful moment for America and I don't think the Biden administration is getting nearly the credit it deserves. Uh, unfortunately, the presidency, the election will likely be determined by one thing, and that's the economy. And then if you go to the central component, that will give people the impression of how the economy is doing its inflation. And I would um, argue that inflation in the U.S. is probably the same or better than it is in any other Western country right now. The inflation here in the U.K. is worse. So I would probably be very focused on how do I bring inflation down. And I think they're doing the right thing. I think raising interest rates, cooling the economy, making investments in production and supply. uh, I think we're going to see inflation come down more dramatically than people estimate. I think OPEC's decision to limit production is a giant fuck you to the West, to be blunt. 
um, at the hands of, uh, this, uh, of Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I think the Biden administration's only flaw, I, I think they put on a masterclass around Ukraine. I think their only real flaw is that they don't communicate it, mm. uh, uh, you know, the victory there and the critical role the West and NATO and the EU and Americans are playing and taking more victory laps and also highlighting that one in three dollars in our in our economy were printed during during the Trump administration as he bailed out everyone and everything and spent 27 percent of the economy on bailouts where they just overdid it. Uh, and part of that is a relief package from Biden. But to believe that inflation is a function of Biden is just ridiculous. And so uh, I would put our shoulders back and be more proud of what we've been able to accomplish uh, in the West um, around Ukraine and pushing back on a dangerous autocrat. And also um, uh, he has to get he has to show some progress against inflation because at the end of the day, for example, Latino voters on the left, we just we just overestimate how liberal people of color are. And Latino voters will play a huge role in the election because they tend to be moderates, actually, politically or, or uh, ideologically. And they're very focused on the economy and the way they register how the economy is doing is inflation. So it's probably going to come down to inflation, which is a little bit unfair. But my advice to them would be uh, be much more vocal uh, about celebrating um, what I think is a, is, is, is a remarkable achievements to date around what's taking place in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Thank you for that. I think I think it's a it's a thoughtful and and comprehensive and and at the same time again no shit assessment of what's happening and where we are. But I want to pull out a piece of that that you have a mm-hmm. unique mastery around. You understand branding and marketing and positioning maybe better than anybody. Uh, I agree with you on on most of that. And and Biden has been incredibly successful in the way he's handled Ukraine, the way he's led strongly, I think, and this can be a pivotal moment. How do they communicate that? Because you cut to the core of it, but there's always a question of, can they communicate that? He's an old guy. He's, he's not cracking through. Trump's going to disrupt him. There are going to be other disruptive forces. How do you think they thread that needle and communicate with American voters? And in particular, maybe as a, as a, as a follow-on side question here, you're great at talking about how uh, white men especially uh, are thinking and, and reacting. That seems like it'll be a critical tipping point, not just for Biden in this election and Trump, but also going forward. So how do you think they can and should communicate those messages and those outcomes and that vision to that, that to that demographic and others? Because it doesn't seem like they are, right? Like they have they have good, good good runs and they don't have strong surrogates. It seems like he's struggling all the time to get traction on his own victories. How do you think they, they do that. And can they? Well, if I were to give them some credit, it would be that uh, the Biden administration realizes the distinctive uh, chest thumping right now and saying, you know, you know, dear Vlad, uh, you know, we're kicking your ass and creating perhaps more hostility and um, rhetoric that is not productive. I think that they are acting like grownups and always trying to leave an exit or trying to leave the opportunity for, for a resolution around the conflict. I think once, and hopefully the conflict does come to some sort of resolution. If I were the Biden administration, I would leak all sorts of material around what a critical role we played in this because more women have been graduating from colleges in the last 40 years than men. And yet only 28% of our elected leaders are women. We both men and women are naturally sexist when it comes to 
choosing our leaders. We conflate leadership with broad shoulders and height and the tenor of your voice. So show me a five foot two woman who's got 130 IQ and is hardworking and great at what she does. She's president of the school board. Show me a guy with 110 IQ, six foot two and a full head of hair. And, you know, his name is Senator. So mm-hmm. we, we really macho is sort of never out of style. People hate government unless you're carrying, you know, uh, uh, an assault rifle or you're, you're in a uniform. You know, it's, it's we, the people we respect most is our armed services that still is an organization that has huge respect. But, you know, God help you if you're an IRS agent or on the school board somewhere. We've just decided that, you know, to be respected in government, you have to be in the business of delivering violence overseas. And by the way, I'm, I, I think it's wonderful that we have that kind of respect for our armed services. So I would go to the macho, if you will. And that is mm-hmm. if and when, hopefully in the next three, six, 12 months, this resolves, I would start planting stories. And this sounds Machiavellian, whatever. I, I would start planting stories about just how much time the Biden administration was working with NATO and uh, providing intelligence armaments and how just bottom line is quietly in an unassuming way, we just decided to kick them in the fucking nuts over and over and over. And, and I, I think that that would, if that, I would go for the chest beating strategy after we've kind of swung on the vines, I would do, I would wait until the conflict is over. And then I would uh, absolutely um, highlight the role we played here. Cause I do think, and I'm curious to get your view. I think we're playing a much bigger role than people recognize. I think the Ukrainian uh, 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 resources and military are nothing short of heroic. I think slowly but surely we're going to find out that a lot of NATO-led, EU-led, and American-led intelligence played a huge role here. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we've covered it on this show at, at length, and I think the underestimated part of the battlefield, this modern battlefield, is the intelligence component. And, and we're not going to broadcast it from from the rooftops, hopefully, but the intelligence assets that we're providing in in coordination with the technology, drones, uh, high Mars, we've talked about a lot in this show. They can be the tipping point, while at the same time affording us this very unique luxury of not putting boots on the ground and not having American casualties, which is, in my view, what modern warfare could have looked like for America twenty years ago if we had approached Afghanistan and Iraq differently. So this, I think, in many ways, is what the future of modern warfare looks like for America. Um, the, the question is, can we sustain that? Can we communicate that? And you've got a guy on the other side in Putin who who doesn't abide by any rules or, or, or any restrictions. So he's a wild card and, and can you know set off a test nuke at any point. And then it comes back to Biden again. So I mm-hmm. I continue to think that. The biggest variable in this entire political equation is the health of Biden and Trump, because the scenario nobody's planning for is if one of them dies and they're both 100%. They're both old. They're both you know, increasingly having health issues. And if either one of them goes down, we're going to have a vacuum and, 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 and a disruption on both sides. Right. From the political standpoint. So I think that tumult and that unease and that constant state of chaos is what we're facing. And people, I think you're right. They're going to look to the strong types. They're going to look to a Fetterman or a DeSantis or someone that's going to bang on their chest. I don't think it should be that way, but I think that's the reality of the branding environment they're operating in, which, which maybe takes me to another point. I really want to get your thoughts on your book adrift, I think is, 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 is really catching hold because you're laying out this landscape, but also, you know, presenting an optimistic end state that is possible. 
what we talk about a lot in the show is independent Americans, the people who are not necessarily moderate, but are unaffiliated and say none of the above. The people who say, mm-hmm. fuck you to both parties. I don't mm-hmm. want any part of this system. But at the same time, they have a unique branding challenge. You know, mm-hmm. it's been defined by Ross Perot, Steve Forbes. Now, Andrew Yang wants to be king of the independents. Can mm-hmm. you talk about from your scientific standpoint and, and the branding standpoint, what do you see as the opportunity for all of the independent Americans, the none of the above folks who are rejecting the duopoly? What's the opportunity from them from, for them from a structural standpoint? And what's mm-hmm. the opportunity from a branding and leadership standpoint? It's a tough one because generally speaking, third parties don't work. I mean, every once in a while we get jonesed up and talk ourselves into believing it's time for a third party and they just don't work. All that usually ends up happening is they end up being spoilers. Uh, Ross Perot gave the election to um, Clinton. Uh, um, Nader gave the election to Bush. They end up just being spoilers. And uh, now my understanding is the largest political party is none of the above or independent. I think it's 41% because people are just so turned off between gerrymandering people. It must be awesome to be a senator or a representative because they will do anything to stay in office, including creating the most perverse congressional redlining. They'd like, okay, pivot. You know, I mean, have you seen these maps? They're just ridiculous. And they all basically say, okay, you draw some crazy map that's all red and I'll figure out a way to create some circuitous, circuitous map that's all blue. So it ends up that the basically the general election is, except for the president, is usually unimportant uh, or it's it's not as important as it should be. It's usually who wins, and at least in the House of Representatives, who wins the primary and who comes out for primaries, hard left or hard right. And we just have too many people uh, who don't. We have minority rule. We have people who don't. You know, we have 30 senators represent who represent about five percent of the population and are. Uh, we have, um, you know, AOC and Ted Cruz are just never going to see eye to eye. They're just not going to, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to find common ground. And the majority of Americans on most issues do acknowledge less so because of social media and polarization that says to everybody, all right, we need to take you hard left or hard right and then serve you media to satisfy that extremist position. But I do think that I'd like to think that uh, there's an opportunity, although I'm not seeing it. I see a need for moderates. I'm not seeing anything. uh, The the most hopeful thing we could have would be ranked choice voting. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, you know, would not have any chance without ranked choice voting. Um, we have to figure out a way to have more moderates. To rep- we have to have a more representative government because reality is the majority of us aren't extremely left or extremely right. So I've made the argument, Scott, that the, the solution to the two-party duopoly is not a third party. And what we're, we're failing to do here is kind of think creatively about the broader opportunity and the solutions that have to respond. So it can't just be one party that is the solution. It needs to be a comprehensive strategy that includes candidates, public financing, ranked choice voting, all these other components on that spectrum. But there still seems to be a lack of a unified strategy and a lack of leadership. So what maybe asking you to put on your your business and media marketing hat here. The question Mm is, 41 percent of viewers, do they exist? Right. And I don't think they're just moderate. I think they're Mm -hmm. more like the Howard Stern audiences and the Rush Limbaugh audiences of past or fuck you to the man and Mm -hmm. fuck you to all the senators. But Mm -hmm. nobody's really squared that circle. And that's why I say, look, the the spirit animal 
of independence is not Andrew Yang. And, and it's more like George Washington, or maybe it's The Rock. Maybe it's somebody that's a transcendent figure that is bigger than party and bigger than all this. Mm -hmm. So do you see a real, like a business opportunity here, right? From a political standpoint, is that 41% gettable? If you're Netflix or someone else and you're trying to access that audience, is it gettable? And, and is there a way to get it without The Rock? Um, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that, so the celebrity, the celebrity sort of politician, I'm not sure that's the answer or waiting on an individual to show up. I think there needs to be structural change. So let me come out as an ageist. I think that we should have age limits uh, for your comments. I don't think people this old should be running for president. Um, and I get accused of being an ageist and I say, guilty. You know who's also ageist? Biology. <laughs> you know who's also ageist? Germany that doesn't allow their Supreme Court justices to serve for longer than 12 years or past 65. You know who else is ageist? The FAA, who says if you've got 400 people in the back, you can't be older than 65 because your physical and your cognitive abilities start declining. And there are now senators who need their staff to accompany them to the chamber because they don't know how to get there because they're so old. And uh, we are ageist when it comes to Senate. We decide that an 18-year-old who can give his or her life for their country, a 21-year-old who can drink alcohol, have multiple kids, they all need to wait 14 or 17 years before they can run for Senate. We are ageist on the bottom end. We need to be ageist on the top end. If you're going to be in your second term over the age of 80, you A, should not be allowed to run or B, be subject to some sort of physical or cognitive tests because cognitive decline is real. And I, I, if Biden gets elected or Trump gets elected, these guys are going to be well into their 80s and we're going to be asking them to get on a plane at a moment's notice and go to Singapore and, and negotiate mm -hmm. a trade treaties. I mean, we took my dad's driver's license away at 78 and you're going to ask these guys to get on planes and negotiate. I mean, it's just it's just I think it's insane. Um, and I think we just need just as we age gate. At the lower level, we need to educate at the higher level. And also, I think that would have the benefit of the following. We need more churn. 50% of America is your age. They're 38 or younger. And 5% of our elected politicians are under the age of 38. A quarter of our elected officials are now older than 70. And when you have men this old, they're just out of touch. It's no accident that the ruler of Iran right now, the supreme ruler, is 82, Khomeini. And you generally have, if you look at a society that really breaks down and ends up in revolution, it almost always involves a really old man mm. running the place who refuses to give up power. And there's so much advantage to the incumbents. And the, the system is so rigged, as I think a lot of our economy is, against young people and towards older people. Senator Diane Feinstein shouldn't be in the Senate. Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have, been, uh, should have stepped down. We don't need a Clarence Thomas at the age of 100. Uh, in this uh, on the Supreme Court, it's just we need to we need age restrictions in in the UK. You weren't allowed to serve as the CEO of a public company past the age of sixty five, and we need more youth. We need to clear out. We have a fixed number of senators and representatives. We need to clear out some people and give younger elect, uh, younger people an opportunity to have representation. It's no accident that we end up with Social Security and bailouts that mostly benefit wealthy and older people when basically the presidential race is determined by the first couple states 
Iowa and Maine, which happen to be some of the oldest and widest states in the nation. So I'd like to see age restrictions on uh, key offices, uh, which would create a lot more opportunity for representation amongst young people who have a different view of the world, understand technology better, I think uh, see threats and opportunities in a different way. So what do we need? We don't need a third party. We need a Democratic and Republican party that better represent America and have a lot more youth. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see uh, a structural change that stops the Congress and the Senate between being a cross between the Golden Girls and the Walking Dead. This has just gotten out of control. Scott, would you? Would, I know I got to let you go in, in a couple of minutes here. Would you run? And and how do you? What? How do you categorize yourself politically right now? Are you an independent, unaffiliate? Where do you sit? And would you ever be a part of that disruption and and run for office or take office in 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 politics yourself? That's a generous question. Every time it's in the. Uh, I have some sort of economic gain that is public. I get a call from someone saying I should run because the primary criteria for running for office are that you're willing to put millions of dollars of your own money into the race because yeah. that's the reality now. Um, uh, uh, I'm a narcissist. So occasionally for a hot minute, I imagine myself running. I think I would enjoy running. I don't think I would enjoy doing the job. I don't very much. I don't enjoy people. And uh, I like running companies and saying what I want to say and the idea of trying to, I think the skill set that these individuals have to demonstrate in terms of their ability to get along with others and and craft legislation, if they're going to be effective representatives is remarkable. I don't underestimate how difficult it is. In addition, you know, Paul, I feel like if you have a good seat in the media and, you're, and you can write well and you you're, you lead with data, you can get it wrong, but as long as your heart's in the right place, you're willing to admit you got it wrong, I think you can have more influence as an outsider. I don't um, think the skills are, I think I, I appreciate that, but I also don't think the skills are as different as they used to be. And you don't have to be as cordial and, and, and uh, you know, respectful as you used to be. You can still throw bombs. You can sit behind a mic and you can be Ron DeSantis. I mean, it works pretty well for a lot of folks. And I don't think that skill set is as different maybe as it used to be 50 years ago when you had to go into the chambers and negotiate legislation. But let me ask you, you didn't answer my question that I wanted to get you on it. Are sure. you, are you an independent or what, what jersey oh, no, do no, you I'm, wear? I'm, I'm um, absolutely a diehard Democrat and uh, who alienates most Democrats because <laughs> Uh, uh, look, if I, if it was the seventies, I'd be a Republican. I'd be a Rockefeller Republican. Yeah. I, I find, I read things that Goldwater said. I'm like, that seems infinitely reasonable to me now in today's context. Um, I find the Republican party has gone so off the rails. Uh, and most of the Democrats who hold office now, I don't, I don't agree with, cause I find they're so extreme, but I'm still very much around the core platforms of choice around investing in the middle class. I'm very much, uh, I haven't always will be, I think, uh, a Democrat. Now, it's, it's, I think, fun to say you're an independent. I'm, I'm center left politically. It depends on the issue, but I've always canvassed for Democratic candidates. And uh, I was at the end of the day, I think Democrats are unrealistic and naive, but their heart's in the right place. I find the Republican Party, the current platform is just, is just kind of, for lack of a better term, it's just mean. So- so, but yeah, I, I, I'd love, I'd love to see more independence in Scott, in if you were, if you were going to evaluate the forward party as a startup, how's it doing? Mm -hmm. Well, Andrew, Andrew, I like Andrew. I would consider him a friend. He brings attention to the right issues. If I were Andrew, I, and I, when he called me and asked me about it, I said, look, I, I'm, I'll support anything you support. Cause I think you're an innovative guy and a, kind of a natural leader. 
I would have just said, pick an issue, rank choice voting, and just go after that. But the idea of starting a third party, it's kind of like, come on, boss. It just, and that's not to say there isn't a first or everything, but if you look around the world, it's mostly, again, these third parties just end up being spoilers. Um, So I, I, I I think Andrew's a natural born leader. If my advice to him would be the specific crowds at the general, I would just focus on rank choice voting. You don't need to do it under the auspices of a, of a new party called forward. I think there's room for that kind of thinking in both parties. I think it's good advice. He won't come on my show till the end of November. So I'm hoping I can ask him when he does. Um, surprises me. Andrew's pretty easy. Andrew likes to get his voice out there. It's surprising a lot of us right now, Scott, but let me get your thoughts on another surprising thing that we've got to get you to talk about Elon Musk. Elon Musk is going to jump in. It looks like on Twitter. What is the impact of that? And, and what do you think we should be looking for, asking for, demanding? I mean, is, this might be one of the most disruptive political moves that we see, especially if he lets Trump right back on. How do, how do you see that unfolding and what happens next there? Uh, look, a, a remarkable person. We're fortunate to have him. We're going to get to Mars sooner because of him, even if it doesn't happen in his lifetime. Uh, I think the EV race he inspired is probably one of the most positive things that's come out of the private sector. I also believe he should be held accountable when he does and says stupid things that are bad for society. So um, just as, you know, I like to think that I, I'm critical of Biden, who I admire when he doesn't uh, uh, quit himself well. In terms of Twitter, I think we probably overestimate Twitter in the sense that it's not a national treasure. And I, I don't I don't like the idea of arbiting who gets to own things and who doesn't. And it's a private company. If he wants to put Yi or Donald Trump back on the platform, that's his right. It's a private company. All of this blather around free speech that he talks about makes no sense. This isn't the public square. It's a private company. You can kick off. You can, when he owns it, if he wants to put on David Duke, he can do that. And then he has to figure out you know, there's a there's a platform that is totally unbridled, totally anything goes. It's called 4chan. And it gets about it gets a fraction of the audience of Twitter because people go on it and think this shit's just crazy and vile. I'm out. I think these platforms or Twitter or to a certain extent, its success isn't despite quote unquote censorship. It's because of moderation. People just don't want to engage or be subject to some of that shit. So if he takes it over, he's a he. The guy is creatively a genius. I, I've know a lot of billionaires. I think success is correlated with intelligence. I find if you had a room full of millionaires uh, or successful people and a room full of people of just uh, average average income level, you would be able to tell really quickly who are the millionaires. And that's that's a comment that people push back on. But generally speaking, uh, people who are successful are different. Now you take that same room and you create a third room. And it's billionaires. I've known a lot of billionaires. I've never been able to discern a billionaire from a very successful person. I think a lot of that comes down to luck and timing. If if Musk hadn't gotten that loan, he was like 11 days away from bankruptcy. And we'd be talking about him the way we're talking about Fisker. Remember them? They were they were mm. neck and neck mm. with Tesla. So uh, the thing I, I don't like about Musk in terms of as a role model to a young man, I don't think he is as appreciative of the society that has been responsible for him becoming the wealthiest person in the world. And that is America. There's a reason he didn't start an EV company in South Africa. There's a reason he's not shooting rockets out of Montreal. If you go up and down the California coast, you see these organizations that are 
uh, as valuable as the GDP of small nations. You start up north at Microsoft and Amazon. You come down to Meta, Google, Salesforce, Snap, Qualcomm, and San- they're just litter the Pacific Coast. But something happens right above Seattle. It stops mm-hmm. until you get to Vancouver and Lululemon. Something happens when you get south of Qualcomm and La Jolla. It stops until you go 4,000 miles to Mercado Libre in Argentina. So the reality is there's something about America, our rule of law, the massive investments we've made in these technologies, whether it's GPS or the loans we've made to EV companies or the infrastructure bill for charging stations or the space dividend. And I find that the most, the most patriotic group of people in America are you know, are, are you, Paul, and your colleagues, and people who served in uniform, who've invested the most in the nation are the most patriotic. And that's wonderful. And anyone who has kids realizes that when you invest massively in something, you just can't help but love it because you've invested so much in it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really heartening. That's really wonderful. What's really discouraging is the people that are the most fortunate, I would argue, are tech billionaires, tend to be the least patriotic. Mm-hmm. They're the first ones to start shitposting our elected representatives and government. And the general narrative out of tech, including Musk, is government should just get out of the way. And they mm. disparage them. Should we have gotten out of the way when we lent the government lent him $450 million to start his company? Should we get out of the way now and not provide $6,500 in tax credits or, or charging stations that are going to cost tens of billions of dollars? The middle class has made these extraordinary investments with the guidance of the most successful venture capital firm in history, and that's the US government, such that we could create these multi-trillion dollar companies sometimes that are a thin layer of innovation on top of middle-class investments. So in some genius, he's great. You know, Elon, stop shitposting America. I think that is a perfect point to end on because I asked you to get to parenting. You got to that. I I hope you can come back and maybe we can talk just about tech and patriotism because I think there is something very, very important and interesting to explore there. My experience, especially going out there advocating for veterans, was hitting a wall for many, many years until they realized the size of the defense budget and realized that there was a new wave of potentially uh, lucrative defense contracts that could come from Silicon Valley. And that was the breakthrough on some levels. But I think there's been a lack of, of patriotism and it can be an evolution of patriotism. But I think you're hitting on something really, really important, especially if we talk about epic fights like like Ukraine and extremism here in the country and other things that I think are you know imminent threats to to our national security. But you've been an, a, an incredible voice, Scott. I hope you can stick around for a couple quick fire questions for our Patreon members. They make this mm-hmm. possible. But um, you've been a voice of reason, man. And I hope Elon stays the fuck out of politics. And I hope you get in <laughs> in, in, whatever, in whatever way you can. Everybody check out his new book, The Drift. Follow him on Twitter and uh, check out the podcast and everything he does. Uh, Professor Scott Galloway, thanks for taking us to school, man. Appreciate you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for your good work. Stay vigilant, my friend. All right, that dude is cool and smart and vital. Follow the great Professor G on Twitter. Sign up for his newsletter, No Mercy, No Malice, at profgalloway.com. I'll link to it in the show notes. And subscribe to his podcast. And check out his new book, Adrift. It's a bestseller. He's making us all smarter. And in this world of confusion, we all need all the help we can get on that. He's a true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope.
The helpers are out there. We see it every day, every single day. I continue to post them. I continue to share them. You continue to flag them. So look for the helpers. I'm posting them on social media all the time, especially on Twitter. And this week I posted a great one. It came from a person who goes by Polar Nerd. Yes, really. That's the Twitter handle. Polar Nerd describes himself as a person who's a physicist, a climate change scientist, trying to make the earth better for my grandkids. From Seattle, Washington. And Polar Nerd described this story that I just love. A colleague took me to lunch today. And we walked from our office down to a deli a few blocks away. We passed a house that had a utility shutoff notice on the door. And my colleague stopped and took it off the door. It's one of those orange utility stop notices. Polar Nerd continued. While sitting at the deli, he called and paid the outstanding bill, over $1,000. Then tore up the notice and threw it in the garbage with no comment. He didn't know who the family was. He just helped a stranger. He's also Sikh and wears a Dastar and gets constant grief from ignorant people. I'm only sharing this because I think it might make a few people smile today. There are good people in the world. And now I'm thinking I can do better myself. Now, Polar Nerd continued after a huge outpouring of support and said, there have been many requests to send money to my colleague who paid someone else's utility bill. Instead, make a payment towards someone else's utilities. And Polar Nerd tells you how to do it. And maybe you want to try it. Number one, call the relevant utility company. Two, press the buttons needed to speak to a human. Three, tell them you would like to pay money toward an address that's not yours and give them that address. Four, they will ask for your payment information and the amount you wish to pay, your credit card and all that stuff. Go ahead and give it a try. Find a needy family and pay something toward their bill anonymously. I love this. If you have the means, maybe give it a shot. Give someone an early Halloween treat. Help them navigate the recession and the chaos in this land of confusion. It's another way you can be a helper. Check the hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter, and share yours. And while you're on social, play Guest the Guest every Wednesday night. We're always doing it. I'm tagging Guest the Guest and giving you a hint and see if you can guess it. This week, not too many guesses. Maybe you were stumped. Maybe you were asleep. Maybe you are watching baseball. Maybe you were buying Elon Musk's cologne. But Grace guessed, Grace GML3897 in Buffalo, she guessed, she guessed Steve Schmidt, which was wrong. But she guessed nonetheless, thank you for playing, Grace. And nobody got Scott Galloway, not even Delfino Sanchez, who I actually didn't hear from this week. Maybe he's celebrating that amazing Astros bottom of the ninth walk-off win. Or maybe he's still clearing trees after the last hurricane. But in addition to playing guest to guest, you can get all the information about this show, including video and ways to buy our merchandise at independentamericans.us. Please check us out, get some merch, support this show, spread the word, spread the movement. And you can check out video of my conversation with Professor G. It's also on YouTube. And if you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get this podcast and leave a review. Every once in a while, we get new reviews and they are much appreciated including one from Sean B., who left a review on Apple Podcasts this week and said, I'm going to do a Sean B. voice. This is a great show for political independence. I found the show a few months ago, and it's one of my favorite podcasts. There's no spin from the two-party system, just great guests, interviews, and independent insights about this country and where we're headed. 
I highly recommend this show. Well, thank you, Sean B. I highly recommend that you continue to spread the word, and I appreciate it. Sean B. probably knows this, but for the rest of you, if you don't, you can also support this show by joining our Patreon community. That's all at independentamericans.us, or you can find us on Patreon. You can throw in a couple of bucks and help keep the lights on, help us keep navigating this land of confusion, and help us keep bringing light to contrast to heat. Shout out to all our Patreon members, especially our newest ones, including Victor Nyangolong. That's a hard last name, man. I gave it a shot. But Victor, big props to you. Thanks for supporting this show. Thanks for helping us continue to bring you the five eyes and all our podcasts and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And the mighty Righteous Media team continues to help us power this show, bring you the five eyes, and navigate this world of confusion. Creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. And we're also, of course, backed by my amazing wife and two boys. Now, life with two little boys is kind of a constant land of confusion. And big news in our house this week was that the boys got bunk beds. That's part of moving from a house in the mountains to an apartment in New York City. And two boys are sharing a room and likely will be until they're 18. And it's not a big room, but it's bigger than the space I had in the barracks in the Army and smells much better. Yeah, so it'll be a challenge, but it will build their unit cohesion and their character. And speaking of characters, the planning for Halloween has already begun. I will not spoil the surprise, but if you're new around here, you're about to find out that I take Halloween very seriously. And I promise you that this year's Rykoff family costume reveal will not disappoint. Last year's Winnie the Pooh and Friends, with yours truly rocking the Eeyore costume, will be tough to top, but I will not let you down. Speaking of not letting you down, wow, my Giants are 4-1. and one. They beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers in London, and the win was huge, even sweeter, after Rodgers turned into an anti-vaxxing wacko in the last season. But... He's still the most accurate quarterback I've ever seen. I just don't root for him anymore like I used to. And the game was on at 9.30 in the morning on Sunday, which worked out great since the F1 Japanese Grand Prix started at 1 a.m., but more like 3 a.m. after a rain delay. So thank you, DVR. And congrats to Max Verstappen. And congrats also to all you Yankees fans. The Yanks are also winning up one to nothing on the Cleveland Guardians, which is still weird to say. They obviously needed to change the name from a racist mascot in Cleveland, but the Guardians still just ain't working for me. It's almost as bad as the Washington Commanders, which I think is just stupid. So football is rolling, F1 is rolling, baseball's rolling, hockey has started, the NBA is coming soon, and we're all going to need it as we get ready to turn the clocks back, which just sucks. And speaking of sports... I pulled my coaching whistle off the shelf for the first time this season and helped coach my son's soccer team. And a crew of seven-year-olds at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday, after a very long day, after not eating, is a whole nother kind of land of confusion. Whew. It was not easy. So props, as always, to all the coaches out there and to all the teachers. From nursery school to graduate school, You're the folks who help get our kids and get all of us through this wild and weird and wonderful land of confusion. This is the world we 
Now, this track is the cover of the classic by Genesis, Land of Confusion. And this track is by Disturbed, one of my favorite metal bands of all time. But the original Land of Confusion was from Genesis's 1986 album, Invisible Touch, an amazing album. And the song reached number four in the U.S. in late 1986. The song was written by the band, and the lyrics are by guitarist Mike Rutherford. And if you were around or alive in 1986, you might remember that the Land of Confusion song had a crazy video with puppets caricaturing Ronald and Nancy Reagan and Jimmy Carter and Margaret Thatcher and Brezhnev and Henry Kissinger. And the video showed, like, Benito Mussolini and the Ayatollah Khomeini and Gorbachev and Muammar Gaddafi and Reagan was putting on a Superman suit and running down a street. And then it had all these celebrities popping in like Tina Turner and Tammy Faye Baker and Michael Jackson and Queen Elizabeth and Hulk Hogan all singing along to the chorus while Pope John Paul II played an electric guitar. It was crazy and amazing, almost as crazy as these times with characters like Donald Trump and Elon Musk and Dr. Oz and Kanye West and Roger Waters. And this version of that song is a 2006 cover by Disturb, which also had an amazing and very political video. This one was animated by the legendary comic book artist Todd McFarlane, the guy who became a comic book superstar for his work on Spider-Man in the late 80s and early 90s. And he also became famous as the creator of the comic book series Spawn. But both videos are centered around a highly political song, one that has spawned highly political videos. Now, maybe someone can do another remake for 2022, but the beat of the song is a beat of an uprising, a revolution. And the lyrics are actually a call to action, a call to activism, and a call to hope. One verse says, Now this is the world we live in, and these are the hands we're given. Use them and let's start trying to make it a place worth fighting for. It's still a place worth fighting for, this land of confusion. We've all got to fight for it because we're all in this together. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And no, you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together. From Elon Musk to Tulsi Gabbard to The Rock. From Genesis to Disturbed. From Professor Scott Galloway to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraini. And stay vigilant, America. Media.